Uh, you do need a sheet. If you've got a Bible, digital or paper, you'll want uh, both of those. As we try to round out uh, what is a very brief study on Israel and Palestine, uh, friends, I, I, I want to share, it was really um, uh, the, this past Tuesday, uh, Pastor Adam and I every month get together with uh, local LCMS pastors from around the Grand Rapids area. And uh, it was our responsibility to provide a Bible study uh, for this particular gathering. And uh, we, we just felt like this has been, this particular study has been really good for us. Um, and so we shared that with uh, the local pastors, and many of them were quite thankful uh, to try to unpack this a little bit in a way uh, that is beneficial for God's people. And so uh, I'm super, super grateful uh, that we've been able to do this together. I'm super grateful that it's going to be a blessing not only certainly to our congregation, but potentially to congregations uh, around Grand Rapids. Uh, today, today, uh, we're going to start with where have we been? Because we've been through a lot of information over the last two weeks, and uh, I want to just try to try to root us again to where we were, and then we'll get into the to the remainder today. Uh, so, so number one, you'll see it here again. Place for you just to highlight, circle, uh, make some comments. But we said in week number one that every conflict, right, including this one between Israel and Palestine, every conflict has its beginning in the human heart. Right? We, said, we said in week number one that all of humanity is broken, right? P-A-N-D-G, nobody's any good. Everybody's, everybody's broken. And nobody does a righteous thing. Uh, Romans 3.10, Paul is quoting the Psalms here, right? Nobody can do good. And so we said in week number one, as we look at this conflict, no amount of policy is gonna fix the conflict, because the only thing that fixes human hearts is Jesus. So we had to start there. Also in week number one, we said the origins of the modern day conflict uh, began really in Genesis chapter 15 uh, with Abraham's two sons of Ishmael and Isaac, uh, where God promised, remember, God promised land to Abraham and his descendants. And so you have both Ishmael and Isaac who are sons of Abraham, both of whom bear out the covenant promises, both of whom bear the sign of the covenant in their flesh, uh, both of them uh, really sort of uh, gifted the land. And so the conflict that we see today, specifically over the land of Israel, right, over the land of Israel, it has uh, deep and long-standing theological roots. Uh, deep and long-standing theological roots. And so we're just, trying to get a, we're just trying to get a glimpse of that as we looked at Genesis chapter 15. Number three, last week, last week, a couple of things uh, that we want to just hinge on. Number one, Israel is best understood as God's covenant people. We've been saying this kind of over and over and over again, that in the scriptures, Israel is almost never a reference to land, but a reference to people. Right? specifically God's covenant people, and those covenant people living in both faith and in obedience. So all the references, I can't say all, but the majority of the references to Israel is really about God's covenant people living in faith and obedience. And yet, time and time again in the Old Testament, God's covenant people failed to live in faith and in obedience, right? failing to live out the covenant promises and commands of Genesis 15. And so God is trying to rectify that problem 
that the covenant blessings which are supposed to be passed down through Abraham and his descendants, Israel was failing to do. And so last week we spent quite a bit of time uh, in Matthew's gospel because Matthew is making the argument that Jesus is the true Israel. He's the one doing what Israel as a people could not do. In other words, he's the one who's bringing the covenant promises of Abraham and the rule of David to the nations. And so last week we were talking a little bit about this kind of picture that if you go back to the Old Testament and to the kind of latter part of Genesis, we have Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham. He's renamed to be Israel. And then Israel uh, has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as we see the history, what was a person becomes a people. So Israel, who was a person, becomes a people. And then in the Old Testament, what we have is a life of disobedience. The people of God, God's covenant people, don't live in faith and in obedience. They're disobedient. I mean, read any of the Old Testament, that's what you're going to read. And so there is, there is lots of prophecy, particularly out of Isaiah, but also out of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, of one who is going to come and restore, right, the Messiah. One's going to come and put everything back together. And so what we saw in the Gospel of Matthew is sort of this movement from people to disobedience, and then for God to rectify the situation, we come back to a person again, right? And in this case, it's to Jesus, And so we said right at the end, right, we said right at the very end of last week that Israel today is still God's covenant people. But God's covenant people, that covenant has been been really rooted now in the work of Christ Jesus. So God's covenant people are the people who are in Christ. Another way to say that, right, is God's covenant people are the church, And so interestingly, listen, interestingly, in the same way that Israel in the Old Testament is not a land, the new Israel, the church, is not a building. The church is what? A people. Uh, We believe that because Israel was a people. We are God's covenant people. So the new Israel is the church today. And so what we're beginning to see now is that in Jesus, again, this is becoming a people, or what we know to be the church. So you see this kind of beautiful movement that's happening. God is remaking his people. So what we're going to try to do today is really kind of look at the New Testament perspective of the new Israel and ask some questions about the land that was promised to Abraham and what do we do that, uh, what do we do with that. And then finally, we're going to talk a little bit about some other approaches uh, in the Christian church, uh, some different and what I believe are erroneous approaches. And then we'll talk a little bit about American foreign policy and how it's actually built on erroneous theological understandings of Israel. All right. So let's dive in. You'll need the Bible. Let's get to Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, Paul does his best to help us understand the new Israel, who God's covenant people are. Remember, Paul, of course, Paul is Jewish. Right? Uh, he is a Pharisee of all things. So he's a, a very Jewy Jew, if you will. Right? He's about as Jewish as you get. And yet he's had, he's had this encounter with Jesus that has transformed him from the inside out. 
And so Paul, as he writes, right, as he's writing to multiple churches, we're going to look here at the church in Rome, but as he writes to multiple churches, again, he, he has to help people understand who is Israel, who are God's covenant people. And so we get some of this in the middle of Romans. Uh, Romans 9, I'm going to start right at verse 1. I'm going to read uh, to verse 9. So just hang, just hang on. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, accordingly to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So just in these first five verses, do do you hear kind of the anguish of Paul's heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters? Who he says, right, in verse 4, the glory, the adoption, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, it all comes out of the people of Israel. God set up the people of Israel, and yet, and yet, they don't have faith in Christ. And so you can hear the anguish in Paul's heart here. Verse 6, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We've already said this multiple times over the last couple of weeks, right? Israel is not about descendancy or pure descent. We looked at Matthew's genealogy, the four women in Matthew's genealogy, none of whom are Jewish. It's not about descendancy. It's not about pure descendants. Verse 7, and not all uh, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. So it's not about the flesh. Paul's kind of saying like Israel is not about those who are born Jewish. God's people or Israel are those who are living by the promise. Specifically, the promise that comes to us in Christ Jesus. The promise of the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. Let's look at Romans chapter 10. So uh, fast forward just a little bit. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm taking, a, I'm taking about four chapters that deals with Israel and trying to just sort of narrow it down for us because it's quite a bit. So Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at verses 9 through 13 as well. So chapter 10, right right at verse 1, it says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's still referring to Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul sees this distinction between the Jews of his day who are trying to become righteous on their own, right, apart from Christ, and those who are submitting to the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. Uh, If we go then uh, to verse 9, so fast forward a little bit further, look at 9 through 13. 
Now, verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, he hasn't been really explicit here, but he is saying, right? He is saying in this moment that anybody who confesses Jesus as Lord, right, who's resting in the promise of his work for forgiveness of sins and life eternal, who's ever doing that, that's Israel, right? This is God's covenant people. Then we look at one more, Romans 11, verses 17 through 24. Again, trying to just boil down like four chapters on this here. So chapter 11, uh, verse 17, Paul says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So Paul's got this kind of beautiful picture that the Gentiles have been grafted in to the root of Israel or to the olive tree in this case. So the Gentiles have been grafted in a new branch of Israel, right? So again, he's saying uh, Israel is God's covenant people. And the Gentiles, those of us who believe in Jesus, all who believe in Jesus have been grafted into the promises of Israel. But he's giving warning in verse 18. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, uh, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. So, so again, you can kind of hear Paul, what we've been saying is that God's covenant people, the Old Testament, didn't believe. They weren't living in faith and obedience. And so they were broken off of the olive tree. And those who were in Christ have been grafted in. So you have this old, right? They, they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you, he says in verse 20, you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, right, God's people live in a faith and obedience. And he's sort of saying, like, if you're not going to live in faith and obedience, guess what? He'll cut you off. Now, those of us who have been reading the Gospels, let's say John, for example, right? And we hear Jesus say, I am the, the vine and you are the branches, right? If you remain in me, then you'll bear much fruit. But my father's the gardener and he'll trim away anything that doesn't bear fruit. And this, is the, this is kind of that reoccurring theme. So there is an expectation that those of us who are the new Israel, you and me, those of us who are in faith in Christ, that we live in faith and obedience, just like the people of old. So, so Paul's trying to give this picture of who the new Israel is. And he'll do it again in Ephesians. He'll do it a little bit in Galatians. He'll do it in some other places. But this is probably the most clear that Paul gets. Right? That Israel's about being grafted in, in the promise. Uh, so you'll see that fourth bullet point there, right? Israel today, the new Israel are all those who believe in and profess Jesus as Lord. 
who live by faith and in obedience. Namely, the new Israel is God's covenant people. And the sign of the covenant, marked in flesh and born out in faith. Uh, marked in flesh, the sign of the covenant is in flesh now, uh, not necessarily in circumcision. What's the sign of the covenant now? Baptism. Yeah. That water on flesh. Marked with a cross, both in the forehead and the heart. The sign of the covenant is now baptism. And then we live it out in faith. So again, all of this is to say, <clears throat> when we talk about Israel today, to our modern ears, a lot of us are still thinking nation-state. But the scriptures, the scriptures had no idea about a nation-state. Particularly a nation-state that was started in 1948. When the scriptures talk about Israel, they're talking about God's covenant people. When the New Testament talks about the new Israel, they're talking about the church. And that's hard for us to bring, I think, when we listen to the news of what's happening in Israel. But it should begin, and we'll talk about this here in just a, in just a little bit, it should begin to say, as we think about people who live in this country and who have representatives who are helping to make policy both domestic and foreign, our foreign policy as it relates to Israel uh, should be based on interests, right? Uh, should be based on interests or uh, like-minded uh, kind of living. Not, our foreign policy should not be built on that Israel has a special place in God's possession as a land, right? Israel as a land doesn't have sort of magic to it, right? It's not God's special possession. The scriptures are really clear. Right, so our foreign policy, as those of us who are in Christ, right, and if we're going to be involved in the things of policy, our policy cannot be because we believe that Israel has some special status before God. That's just not the case scripturally. Right, but our foreign policy should be driven then by interests and like-mindedness. Now, what does that do for the lands? We've been talking about Israel the land, right? Does Israel, specifically, does the new Israel inherit the land that was promised to Abraham, right? Because remember, that's the covenant promise, right? You will possess a land, and that's what the conflict is fighting over. So will we possess a land as the new Israel? Uh, let's look here, Second Peter 3. I'm going to try to answer this question, or at least let the scripture writers answer this question. Second Peter, so latter New Testament. Second Peter 3. 10, uh, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. So verse 10, 2 Peter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, so let's just pause here. Uh, <clears throat> this maybe is not giving you a lot of comfort, but, it, but at the end, a time is coming when the heavens and the earth will be dissolved. They're going away. That's the promise here. So since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be 
in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting, listen, we are waiting for a new heavens and a what? And a new earth in which the righteousness dwells. So the promise of the latter New Testament, we're going to look here in Revelation, is that the old earth and the old heavens are going to pass away and that a new heaven and a new earth will be restored in Christ Jesus when he comes again. And that new heavens and that new earth will be without sin and brokenness. That's what he's going to establish. So let's look at Revelation 21. So keep going into the very end of the New Testament. This is almost the end of the Revelation. So Revelation 21, 1 through 7. So remember, this is John, the writer of the gospel, the writer of those uh, first, second, and third John. Uh, he's exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, on this island, God's Holy Spirit gives him this revelation of what is to come. And so here we are in 21, uh, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So again, John is allowed to see right a new heaven and a new earth. If I could boil it down, a new sky and some new land. And I saw the holy city, that is, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. So the picture here is that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And it will be a new heavens and a new earth that God's covenant people will live in. Because we believe, right, in the resurrection of the body. Right? Not just a resurrection of soul. We believe that when Jesus comes again, we'll rise not only in soul, but body. Right? We will be physical beings when Christ comes again. We'll be physical beings in a new heaven and a new earth. And so the New Testament writers, and for probably 1,800 years of church history, when we think about the land that was promised to Abram and his descendants, the New Testament writers in 1,800 years of church history says the new land, that land is the new heaven and the new earth. And we, right, that will be our inheritance. Yeah? So do we actually inherit the land? The answer is, well, not that land over the sea. We do inherit a land, a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah. So again, as, as Christians, we're less concerned with that land, right, that's over the sea. 
what we ought to be concerned with is a new heaven and a new earth. Living in faith and obedience. Like those are the things we want to be concerned with. So the inheritance comes to us. Now, why does this matter? Let me, let me give some uh, perspective on a different and what I believe is an erroneous perspective. All right? It was in the 1840s, 1840, like I'm circling that, by the way, 1840. So in the 1840s, a man named John Nelson Darby first invented the idea that the end times involved a restored earthly nation in that land. The idea that we need to set up a nation of Israel and that the temple needs to be rebuilt in that place is a super young idea. In other words, for 1,800 years of church history, nobody thought that. It's only been in the last like 150 that we thought it. Now, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to say, like, I know better than 1,800 years of church history and theologians. I mean, new idea, totally brand new, right, in the scope of church history. So it's in the 1840s, this man says, uh, hey, you know what, here's an idea. It seems to me that for the end times, in order for that to really kick off, then we need a restored earthly nation of Israel in the land that bears that name. And so then, in the wake of World War II, when a nation that has now been established, sharing the name, quote, Israel, was founded, and here's the founding date, the 14th of 1948, uh, in the land of Israel's ancestors, the followers of Darby began to spread the idea that it was finally coming to fulfillment. That the idea that they came up with, right, that John Darby came up with in 1840, in 1948 was suddenly being fulfilled. Which again, nobody for 1,800 years believed this. And so what we have, uh, what we have is something called dispensational theology. Now, that's a really big word. Um, for those of you who are maybe into f- like fantasy or you like uh, things like Lord of the Rings or <clears throat> you know, Game of Thrones, that kind of thing. So, so imagine, imagine dispensations uh, like epochs, right? Uh, so there are, there are like these epochs of history, or what dispensationalists will call sort of dispensations of history. And each epoch or each dispensation is kicked off by particular events. Right? So sort of like the new era is happening. So dispensationalists, those who are kind of following the teachings of Uh, John Darby from the 1840s are saying, ultimately, that in 1948, when suddenly you have a nation of Israel in the land of Israel's ancestors, this is like the cataclysmic event that sets off this new dispensation. In 1948, when Israel sort of moved in and displaced all the Palestinians who were living there, when they moved in and set up Israel, it became a nation state. That is setting up the end times. We have a new dispensation. We're in a new epoch now. We're moving towards Jesus' return. This theology called dispensationalism is still taught today in seminaries. Uh, it's taught most prominently at Dallas Theological Seminary. 
a number of fairly well-known preachers and teachers across the U.S. are alumni of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, One of the largest names is a man named Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley went to Dallas Theological Seminary. He is a proponent of dispensational theology. Dispensationalists are saying, ultimately, that we need a new, restored Israel in the land of ancestors where we can rebuild the temple on the place that it formerly was. And we need it in order for Jesus to come back. A dispensational theology, by the way, was the theological grounding for that New York Times best-selling series called Left Behind. It was written by a dispensationalist. Now, thankfully, when you read that book, if you read that book, I read all of them, right? You picked it up in the fiction section. But it was written, right, by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, who are dispensationalists. And so that that reading of the Left Behind series, that Jesus is going to come, people are going to disappear, and then we're left, this is kind of thousand years, and the rise of the Antichrist and the rebuilding of Israel, that is dispensational theology written out in a fiction for you. And so it's still very prevalent today. Very, very prevalent. Now, why does all this matter? We're going to keep pressing in a little bit to Israel and her history, and we'll get to why I think this matters. Uh, for those of us uh, who are younger in the room, we, we may not actually remember this, right? But the nation of Israel was born in 1948. Now, just a couple of things. The land of Israel hasn't really been Israel since about 70 AD. In 70 AD, uh, in 70 AD, ultimately, uh, Jerusalem and Israel is overthrown by an oncoming army. And Israel, as a people, would never really possess that land again. And so through most of history, from about 70 AD to 1948, the area that we now think of Israel was most often referred to as Palestine throughout history. Right? So between 70 AD and about 1948, that area is thought most often to be Palestine, not Israel. So on, on May 14th, 1948... This is after the first phase of the Arab-Israeli war. Israel declared its independence. To do that, they displaced about 700,000 Arab people from their homes. Uh, Many fled to Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Kuwait, which, by the way, when we think of those countries, what do we think of, typically? Arabs and Muslims, most of whom came out of the land of Palestine, who were displaced after the Israeli-Arab War. Some of them even fled to the U.S. Now, there are some great great books on this if you want to read about it. Uh, Really, really some good books. There's one called Blood Brothers. Uh, I'll have to get you the author. I can't recall his name. It's a Palestinian name, which is probably why I can't recall it. Uh, But I'll find that reference and give it to you, particularly if you're uh, watching the email that comes with the podcast. So it's 1948. It's 1948. Israel has now sort of put the flag in the ground and says, this is our land. 
They've displaced hundreds of thousands of families. So the question is, what is the U.S. to do in 1948? Now the U.S., <clears throat> the U.S. becomes a quick ally with Israel, with now the nation state of Israel. Not necessarily because of ideology and interest overlaps, but rather because of two things. The first, <clears throat> and I, this, is not, this is not my opinion, uh, this is a lot of historians and theological commentators over time, but the first is a collective guilt over the Holocaust. Obviously, the story of the senseless death of Jewish people at the hands of the Nazis is a big deal. And we, as God's people, should grieve that. And I think the world, including the U.S., had a level of collective guilt about that reality. Now, I want to pause here for just a second and say... Uh, it's, it is interesting, however, that there is a collective guilt for Jewish people who died at the hands of Nazis, but almost no story being told about the Romani. The Romani are what we would call probably gypsies, right? They're wanderers through most of Europe, uh, who almost, almost as many Romani died at the hands of Nazis as Jews. We don't, we don't tell that particular story. The story, particularly of Jews in Israel, gets told. So on one hand, I think we had a collective guilt as a country that Israel is saying, we are not a people who are going to disappear. Right? You can't make us disappear. So we're going to stick our flag in our ground and call ourselves a nation and state. And a collective guilt borne out by countries probably like, yeah, we're not going to tell you no now. because you've just suffered atrocities at the hand of a people group. We're not, we're, not, we're not gonna say no. So on one hand, on one hand, you have collective guilt. On the second hand, you have an unsavory marriage between the dispensationalists and the religious or the evangelical right. Let, let me explain what I mean. So remember, I'm saying in 1840, John Nelson Darby is beginning to sort of have this dispensational theology. Right, that all these things in Israel have to happen. The temple has to be rebuilt in the land of Israel's ancestors. His followers in 1948, when Israel finally becomes a nation, say, hey, these things are happening. Hmm? Uh, simultaneously, so that theology is being taught in churches. Right? It's, it's spreading like fire. It's being taught in churches. Simultaneously, there are conservative uh, Christians who are beginning to flex their muscle in politics. And that conservative Christian kind of remnant uh, are really beginning to have influence in the kind of policies that the country is putting into place. And that same conservative Christian remnant who's beginning to flex their muscles in terms of policies of the U.S., most of whom are believers in dispensationalism. What does that mean? Well, it means that if I'm beginning to flex my muscle in terms of American foreign policy, and I'm a follower of Jesus who believes right, the teachings of dispensational theology, then I absolutely want our government to protect the land of Israel, the land 
of Israel. Why? Because I believe that Jesus won't come again unless Israel is established and the temple is built on the place that it was built formerly. So now the conservative right or the evangelical right in the 40s, in the late 40s, is helping to drive American foreign policy based on what I believe is erroneous theology. And so our foreign policy towards Israel since about 1948 has been built on dispensational theology. So as followers of Jesus, as those of us who are the new Israel, and we're going to inherit a land that is a new heaven and a new earth, again, I want you to keep in mind, I'm not trying to talk poorly about dispensationalists. I'm just trying to say for 1,800 years, that is not what the church taught. Right? This, is, this is a really, really new idea. And so as followers of Jesus then, again, God's covenant people inheriting a land in the new heavens and new earth, we, we can certainly support the nation and the state of Israel as an ally because we believe their ideologies and their interests overlap with our own. But not because we believe that the nation, the state, or the land of Israel holds any kind of special status with God. We don't need Israel and the temple to be rebuilt there for Jesus to come again. He'll come whenever he wants. Yep. Oh, yes. Is there going to be a new temple built? What's the answer? Yeah. The answer is yes, a new temple is built. But Paul, in the New Testament, begins to describe things like, hey, don't you know... That your body is the what of the Holy Spirit? Right. Peter would write something very similar when he says you're being built into the house of God. Right? Stone upon stone, you're being built into the house of God. In other words, you're being built into the dwelling place of God, the temple. So is there a new temple? Yes. But that temple is God's people. And in the same way that the church is not a building... Right, the temple is not a building. It's a people. So the answer is yes. There is a new temple. It's just not one that has to be built in the land of Israel. So again, friends, I, I want to be clear. Like, I, I really believe that we can support, and we should support, we should support nations and states right, that have overlapping ideologies and interests. That's a good thing. And if that's Israel, then we should do that. But we shouldn't be an ally for Israel because we believe that Israel as a land holds some special status. Right? The New Testament writers uh, aren't holding to that land. 1,800 years of church history is not holding to that land. Right? It's not about special status. So, what can we do then with all of this? Hmm? What do we do with all this? Well, the first thing I think that God's people should do is pray. It's almost like, well, that, that sounds simple. Uh, if you think the prayer for the cessation of violence is simple, then we should rethink what we do when we pray. Uh, we, we should definitely be praying that conflict would come to an end. Right? That justice is served. Right? That justice is done. 
Uh, we should certainly pray those things. We should pray in, uh, really in concert with the grieving of families who have lost people to a senseless war. Not just in Israel and Palestine, but every war that we encounter, every conflict we encounter. These should be our prayers for the Ukraine and Russia, by the way, which hasn't been in the news in how long? It's still going on. So as God's people, right, anytime we come in contact with a war or the rumors of war, our first inclination should be to pray that the peace which surpasses all human understanding might descend in that place. Right. Secondly, I think we can lobby our representatives in Congress. But I think if we're going to lobby our representatives in Congress, it has to be through our theology of life and dignity and the flourishing of humanity. Not lobbying our representatives in Congress because we believe Israel has some special status with God. Right, we should lobby our representatives for the things of life and dignity and flourishing. Uh, so I think, right, this is, this, is, this is Pastor Brian talking now. I think that when in the UN, the US, the only country, vetoed, right, when they actually vetoed a ceasefire, we were in the wrong. I think absolutely the US should have voted for a ceasefire. I don't care if it's not the best plan, right? I don't care if I don't think it's going to stick. But what's driving that? It's a theology of life, right? We should grieve every death that happens. Right? And if, if, as a country, we have the opportunity to say, hey, we want to see less death, I think we should do that. But again, that's being driven by a theology of life and human flourishing and dignity. So I think we can absolutely lobby right, our representatives. But I want us to lobby as God's people for life and dignity and human flourishing. I wouldn't want us to lobby Israel because, quite honestly, we think they have special status. Third, what do we do? Well, I think as God's people, as the new Israel, we live out the covenant promises and commands which were given to Abraham. In other words, to love our neighbors, right? If you remember, the, the covenant command is that uh, God's going to bless the descendants of Abraham so that they might what? Bless the nations around them. Right? I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. So I think we, as the new Israel, live out those covenant commands to love our neighbors, including, Jesus says, our enemies. And we do that with our whole heart, mind, and strength, as Jesus says. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot to pray and to live love and to lobby uh, our representatives for the sake of life, but... That could take a lot of time, by the way, <laughs> to do those things. Yep. So, so Laura's asking the question, as a part of BSF or Bible Study Fellowship, uh, which is a beautiful Bible study organization, 
who works, I think, really hard uh, to not kind of line up into any one particular theology, which I believe is impossible, right? You're going to land in some kind of theology. Uh, but again, I, I think BSF does incredible Bible study. But Laura's concern is I've got people who are a part of BSF, right, who haven't been baptized or whose kids haven't been baptized because they're waiting for their children to decide, right, uh, to make a decision about Christ. And then baptism for them is kind of an outward sign of what's going on internally, right? So for a lot of, uh, for a good chunk of the Christian church, they don't believe that God actually does anything in baptism. But baptism is just something that we do in response to what God has already done, And we think that the means of baptism, that it actually does something, that God actually works in that in some mysterious and miraculous way. And so what do we do in terms of the sign of the covenant, right? What do we do in terms of the signs of the covenant? Well, again, Laura, I'd offer two things. One is, um, you know, there's a, do do I, uh, here's a, this is an interesting theological question. Do, Do I need baptism in order to be saved? Thought yes. How many think yes? We need baptism to be saved. How many of you think no? How many of you are unsure? I appreciate the unsures, yeah? Uh, the, the answer is no, you don't need it to be saved. And what's the biblical precedent? Does it? We not. Oh, there it is. <laughs> it's not up yet. So, the thief on the cross is the precedent. Uh, we, we know that he wasn't baptized, and yet we know the promise of Jesus that today you'll be with me in paradise. Right, so, baptism isn't absolutely necessary, and yet I think it's necessary. Did I say that right? I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but I do think it's necessary. Right? It's foundational. Uh, It's also because I believe God does something. So if I believe, right, if I believe that humans are born into an inherent problem, in other words, they're born into sin, right, if people are no dang good, I need God to rectify that. And we believe that God does rectify that in baptism, that God works for the forgiveness of sins in that moment. So necessary? Yes. Right? Absolutely necessary? No. No. That's a theologian trying to get around what the scripture says. Right? Is it necessary? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely necessary? No. So on, on one hand, uh, the, the, the reality is, is it's that Jesus is the one who saves us, right? It's that Jesus works in baptism for our saving. But Jesus is the one, and it's his work that saves us. So I'm, I'm not worried in the same kind of way for the people who are sitting around my BSF table, right? We don't have that yet. Yeah. Any other questions? We have maybe five minutes, six minutes. Anything else? Yes, sir. It's a good question. So the question is when when Christ comes again and he sets up his 1,000-year reign, right? uh, where is he going to do that? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pick on you just a little bit, but uh, lovingly. The idea that he's going to set up an actual 1,000-year reign is dispensational theology. Uh, Lutheran theology is 
a millennial. Is a millennial. Yep, a millennial, right? A millennial. Uh, what, do I, what do I mean? I mean that he's not going to set up an actual 1,000-year reign in the same way that he's not going to set up a temple in the land of Israel. And so, so part of that is how do we read uh, kind of apo, uh, apo, sort of uh, how do we read like the Revelation? How do we read Ezekiel? How do we read Daniel? How do we read Second Peter? Kind of this um, apocalyptic scriptures. Like how do we read that? Apocalyptic scriptures, I think, are, it's dangerous to read them in a way that is so literal. This is dangerous. So what, what we would say is that Jesus is already reigning in his, quote, 1,000 years. So, again, conservative theology that's not dispensational for 1,800 years, when Christ ascends, right, in the book of Acts, He's seated at the right hand of God. What is he doing there? He's reigning. Right? And when he comes again, when he comes again, again the picture in the Revelation and some of Ezekiel, when he comes again, right, all the old things are going to be dissolved, which we read, and a new heaven and a new earth is going to be set up. That's it. Right? There's, not a now, there's not now a thousand years. Although that is what we read in the Left Behind series, that there was a literal 1,000-year reign. Right? Again, dispensational in its theology. But again, that is a relatively new idea, not an old idea. Lloyd? <laughs> I don't like where this question is going already, Lloyd. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, some of what Lloyd is saying is they're doing a study, uh, the men are doing a study of Revelation, which is a great study. And and interestingly, anytime I've ever worked with high schoolers, for example, like, hey, what do you guys want to study? We want to study Revelation. I don't know why. Uh, It's really anticlimactic, right? When you get to the end, uh, God just sort of uh, beats everybody. Like, you know, he just sort of conquers and it's over, right? But, uh, nevertheless, we, when we read Revelation, we should read that with some careful eyes. Like, again, we, we, um, to Lloyd's points, uh, we, we don't recognize how much dispensational theology has seeped into our understanding of the end times or to Israel. And we probably, lots of us who grew up on the Left Behind series, don't realize how much the Left Behind series, which you purchased in the fiction section, has actually influenced how you think about the truth of the end. And so, so lots of people, and this would be my parents included, like they loved the Left Behind series. But they allowed that to shape their understanding of the truth of what's going to happen at the end. Not the scriptures. 
so what is again what's been a, a relatively young idea and I keep, I keep coming back to that because I I think what the church has taught through history matters I mean the idea that a that a land had to be set up uh, if for 1800 years we've never believed that it just seems weird than the last 150 we think we should that somehow we're more enlightened than 1800 years of history and so it is. It is a bit of a challenge, Lloyd, to try to read those things and to read those things well. Uh, it's a. It's probably a lifelong learning to try to unpack, particularly the end time scriptures. I've got two more minutes. Yes, sir. So, uh, so Les's question is: Where's the connection between uh, Jewish people and Israelite land? Right. Yeah. So I think, I think to kind of answer your question last, I think we've, we've been there in some ways, right? The land is the promise from God to Abraham and to his descendants. And so uh, sometimes we'll talk about the descendants of Abraham as Israel, and sometimes we'll talk about them as Jews. But what we think of Jewish people, right, when we tend to think of Jewish people, we're tending to think of Jewish, uh, probably Judaism after 70 A.D., so remember, in 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed, right? Israel's kicked out of the land. Right? Israel ceases to be Israel in 70 AD. And what becomes, what becomes of Israel then is a kind of Jewishness called rabbinic Judaism, right? Where we lean on the rabbis to tell us what the Torah says or to tell us what the scriptures say. So what we think of to be Jews is really kind of a small derivative of rabbinic Judaism started after 70 AD. Right? And yet, those people, right, Jews today, particularly Orthodox Jews today, or Zionists, as we talked about in the weeks past, they still believe that the land which God promised to their ancestors is to be possessed by them. And so whether I think of myself as Israeli or I think of myself as Jewish, if I have an orthodox understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, I'm going to hold to the promise of land. Right? That's why I fight for it. It's why the Zionists are fighting for it today. Because they believe that God gave it to them. And it's the blessing right, that they're supposed to possess. So the connection, is, I mean, the connection is long between how we think about Judaism and how we think about Israel and how we think about Jews in the scripture. Uh, it, it can be a little complicated. But it is all sort of connected, I think, back to Genesis 15. Well, friends, if you have more questions, if you want to talk about it, or if you want to talk about ways that you can lobby your representatives for the things of life, talk to me or talk to Pastor Adam. We're happy to answer those questions and try to help guide us as we think theologically uh, when it comes to policy, right, when it comes to our politic. And we should. Uh, we should be involved in the politics of our country. But friends, I'm going to say this. This is Pastor Adam and I's desire, right, is that when we do, when we engage in politics, this is a great opportunity. This study's been a great opportunity. When we engage in politics, we should be driven first by theology. Right, with us, because we, we believe that the scriptures are the truth. So we, we have to wrestle really hard with scriptural truth if we're going to apply it to policy. We have to know what the scriptures say about those things before we apply it to policy. Uh, to that end, uh, let me say this. On the other side of Christmas, right, there's no Bible study next week or the week after. Uh, there won't be on the 7th either because we're going to have a, a small congregational meeting 
uh, to place a call for a candidate to be our director of youth and family. Uh, but when we come back on the other side of Christmas, on the 14th of January, we'll start the adult Bible study again. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. Now, some of you are like, mm, I did that in catechism. I still remember them, right? But here's the thing. The Ten Commandments, uh, if we pick them apart in the ways that they should be, it has a lot to say about how we live in the world today, including our politics. So take, for example, you shall not kill, right? That commandment matters, and how we think about that commandment matters when it comes to things like policy. For example, is there something, uh, is there surely something called a just war? Is a war ever just? Is capital punishment biblically okay? That's an Old Testament understanding, eye for an eye, right? But here's the thing. We have to be able to pick that apart. Is concealed carry of a firearm biblically okay? Is self-defense in my own home theologically okay? Or we talk about commandments like you should not commit adultery. It's all about sexual ethic. As Christians, we have a sexual ethic, and we should understand that as we think about policies in our country. So, if that's the kind of thing that you want to get under, right, if you want to just sort of try to understand what God is saying in his scriptures about those things, we're going to pull those apart through the Ten Commandments, right, because those shape how we're to live. Uh, Jesus says the Ten Commandments are how we love our neighbor, so if we're going to understand what it means to love our neighbor, we're going to pull apart the Ten Commandments. That's on the other side of Christmas. You can look forward to it then. You can already get your angry email ready for me. It's going to be fantastic. Really, uh, really, really good. Uh, here's what I'd love to do. Let's pray because uh, someone has to get to church, namely me. So let's do that. A good and gracious Father, thank you for these last three weeks. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to dive into your scriptures in a new way, to try to understand what it is your scriptures are saying so that we can apply that to how it is we live. And we think especially, we think especially of how it is we live in relationship uh, to Israel. Father, we do pray with our whole hearts for the cessation of violence. We pray that the peace which is beyond understanding would descend into leaders, both Palestinian and Israeli, to Ukrainian and Russian. Lord, we pray for violence around the world to come to an end. We pray, as your scripture says, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we grieve with those who grieve. And so we, we grieve in solidarity with mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and grandparents who today and days before it have come home to less people around their table. Father, we know that the only thing that cures conflict is that Jesus would come again that he would make all things new. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In your precious and your holy name. Amen. All right, y'all, get out. <laughs>